Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, your weekly horror movie podcast that covers all horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I am not joined this week by uh, Jerry Smith. Jerry, unfortunately, had a bit of a family emergency he had to take care of, so he asked if we could still record tonight because we actually have three guests lined up. We figured... Two is super easy and always goes so well, so let's go for three now. We're going to eventually have a 30-person podcast on and try to break some records right now. Um, so let's go around the table right now, and we'll start with our returning guest. Uh, you first heard him on our Scream 2 episode. He was our first ever guest. He's the editor-in-chief of Ghastly Gritting and the co-host of Keep Screaming, the Keep Screaming podcast. We have Ryan Larson. Hey, thanks for having me back on. I'm super excited to talk about this movie with you guys. So glad to have you back on. You're wonderful to have when we talk Scream 2 and a ray of positivity. So we're definitely excited to have you on as well. I try. You all, and you succeed, my friend. And you succeed. <laughs> so, um, Up next, we have the co-host of the Horror Virgin podcast, a weekly show that is... You know, and could be called like bullying in some cases. They make one of their dear friends who hates horror movies and despises being scared. They make him watch a different scary movie every week. With yes, the every movie is consensual, though he agrees. <laughs> so we have uh, Jen from the Horror Virgin podcast. Jen, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I had one I'm question. Excited. Thanks. Is is the goal of your show to make Todd crap his pants? Like well, That might be Mikey's goal. My okay. goal really is to convince him to love horror, because I want to convince everyone to love horror, and I think I'm going to win him over one of these days, but I think Mikey okay. does try to yeah. make him squirm as much as possible. And you're about, what, 68 episodes in? Am I right on the count there? Yeah, yeah I think uh, 68 or 67, yeah. So he's got a lot under his belt. He still yeah. screams and throws his phone in the right. air sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because every show is like, I hated this movie. So right, right. he's got some <laughs> work cut out. He hates it. He, when he hates a movie, that means that it scared the shit out of it. Okay. That's a <laughs> movie. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Arielle Fisher, a freelance writer, editor, and podcast. She's actually just been named the editor of The Bite um, from Shudder, uh, the streaming horror movie service, which you can go to Shudder right now and subscribe to this weekly newsletter. It comes out every Tuesday. You can also find her work in the pages of Fangoria Magazine, uh, Rue Morgue Magazine, and I believe you've just come on board with Slash Film. I have, yeah. I have a column with Slash Film called Queering the Scene. Excellent. How are you doing tonight, Ariel? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so what? how we usually like to start the show is we usually ask our guests like what it was about Friday the... Well, not if we're covering Scream, we wouldn't say Friday the 13th, of course, but what it is about Friday the 13th and this particular entry um, that wanted to make you come on board and talk about it so tonight we're talking about 2009 remake um so what was it about this movie in particular that kind of grabbed your attention that made you want to come on tonight and we'll start i guess in the same order we'll go with ryan first um so i'm a huge fan of slashers the, the podcast i do with my best friend b is actually um dissecting slasher movies one by one it's it's my favorite genre always has been fell in love with horror uh because of scream and 
because of me jumping in so late in the game, I kind of had to play some catch up. So I was definitely like kind of a young younger kid, like mid teens when I started watching all the slasher movies. And I, of course, like loved all the franchises, but Friday was always near the bottom. That has changed a lot in recent years. But to begin with, it kind of was. So when 09, when it came out, I just instantly fell in love with it because, one, I'm a sucker for that CW cast. Give me uh, all the Padalecki and Panabaker that is available. Uh, And two, I really liked how they condensed basically four movies into one, uh, especially because to this day, I'm still not like the biggest fan of Friday the 13th Part 1, like the very first one. So I loved like the jump through that in the intro credit and then really jump into the movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I always champion this movie when they talk about remakes. I know a lot of that era kind of gets, I, I mean, kind of gets crapped on. I think the internet's coming around, but this was always the one, whenever that question inevitably comes up, like, what's your favorite remake? It's, it's this and, and the Fright Night remake. Yes. I love that one. Oh yeah. Okay. So Jen, why don't you go next? What, what is You said, I love this one. So what is it about this one that you love? Um, well, I love Friday the 13th is my favorite of this. Well, I love Scream, but Friday the 13th is my favorite of the slasher franchises. I love Jason. Um, I, I think it's something about wanting to like commemorate days that I was always so excited when it was Friday the 13th because I would get to watch a scary movie and I could kind of excuse it. And um, the first or the original is one of my all fa- all time favorite horror movies. Um, it's like comfort. <laughs> Food. When you look at the slasher formula, it's like it's almost pure, you know, and it doesn't really scare me anymore. But I would watch it so much over and over again. And when I saw that we were going to have a remake, I was so excited. I went to see it on opening night because it came out on Friday the 13th. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I just I thought this was a pretty good remake. There are things. Well, we can get into that later. But, yeah, I was really excited to talk about it because mm-hmm. I love I just love Jason. Yeah, and I think I agree with you on the consistency of, like, Friday overall as a series. Um, I don't think it hits the peak of, say, a Scream or an Elm Street or uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. But it's like going to the In-N-Out Burger. Like, you know you're going to get pretty good quality overall, with the exception of perhaps Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. So Hey, now. Jason Takes <laughs> Manhattan has its charm, okay? Oh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, so does that three-legged chihuahua that my wife and I almost adopted, but it oh actually... Well, <laughs> you know what, that's, been... a, that's an apt comparison for Jason Takes Manhattan, yeah. let's be honest. Yes, or Jason on a boat. Um, yeah, exactly, Jason Takes a Cruise. <laughs> I cannot, for the life of me, whenever I think of that movie, um, the song um, On a Rope from Rocket from the Crypt gets stuck in my head for <laughs> hours, except I keep singing Jason uh, on a boat over and over again, and it's it's really annoying. Um, Ariel, I've heard you might have a contrarian opinion on the remake overall compared to the rest of us, so I'm interested to hear your take. What was it that made you want to talk about this movie? It's interesting, actually, because that, that I, I agree with everybody. I dig the hell out of this one. Um, I'm completely but... wrong. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but I come to it from a completely different vantage point. I actually... I don't even think I saw any of the Friday the 13th in their entirety until I was maybe in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I had seen some, you know, snippets of Halloween. The slashers were never that big for me. And I also kind of started, I kind of worked a little backwards. There were some horror movies that I started out with as a kid. But for the most part, I came to them, like, 
the old school movies a little bit later. I started kind of keeping up with the trends as they were happening. Uh, but with this, um, I didn't actually see this movie until a few months ago for the first time. Ooh. Whoa. So, it was recommended to, it was, yeah, I had kind of put it off because it looked kind of trashy. I didn't have any good vibes about it. I was like, it doesn't need to happen. I don't get why this is a thing. And I'd been so disappointed with other, you know, slasher and horror remakes, like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake was such a disappointment. So I just, eh, I was reticent. And then uh, my partner, uh, John, Jonathan Barkhan, he's uh, at Dread Central. He was like, no, 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 you have to watch it. It's amazing. So he kind of forced me to sit down and watch it just a few months ago, and I was completely blown away because, I mean, it's like we've already mentioned, it blows through the first couple of movies mm-hmm. it, lightning fast, and then it kind of stops being a remake and almost mm-hmm. becomes a sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's really fascinating, and especially the way they approach it, but they've still got these nice callbacks like the sleeping bag, and like mm-hmm. there's all this really fun stuff in it. So, and... Derek Mears is ridiculous, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> get into that in a minute, I'm sure. But yeah, no, I love the hell out of this one, and I'm super stoked to, you know, dig into it. So I'm interested, what was it about the Friday series that made you avoid it until your mid-20s? Well, I don't mm, I don't think it was anything about the franchise itself. Like, it wasn't like I'd heard they were terrible or anything. Um, but I can tell you exactly what got me into them. And oddly enough, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was it was Jason Takes a Boat Ride. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was on a podcast, uh, Toronto-based podcast called See You Next Wednesday. And they were, or no, it was Time Bandits. Sorry, same guys, different show. Mm-hmm. And they were taking a look at uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. So they were like, why don't you come on? You dig this stuff. And I'd never seen it before. And I hadn't gone through the entire franchise. So I actually started with, Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, wow. And I love the hell out of it because it's so terrible in all the best ways. And you can just <laughs> dig into it. And it's shot in Vancouver, but it's supposed to be Manhattan. And then they have that one damn shot. And it's like, cool, there goes our budget. So there's a lot to love and a lot to hate and kind of at the same time. Uh, so that was kind of my gateway for it. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I love the slashers. Interesting. Okay, so overall, you're a slasher fan, but you would have avoided the Friday films up until that point, mostly. Yeah, and not even for any particular reason, just kind of... Just- by happenstance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you'll get to it eventually at some point. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. You just miss movies, um, you know? Hmm? Sorry. I, sometimes you just miss movies, you know? And I'm trying I try to keep up with the new stuff. And I got really into the 90s slashers and mm-hmm. just kind of like the teen slashers and just kind of missed some of the sequels. And I was a little too young to watch the early ones when they came out. So, you know, just weren't on my radar. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of the same. Yeah, and it's hard to put the seventh one in a franchise on your radar unless there's a reason for you to watch right. it. Like, I had a boyfriend who loved Jason Goes to Hell and showed it to me, and that was one of the first ones that I'd seen other than the original. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's so interesting to me because I just think that if I watched Jason t- uh, on Takes Manhattan first, I would have avoided it. I would have been like, all right, I think I'm done. Um, so I just find that really fast. Cause it's the one movie in the series where I'm like, and I'm in, I, you know, Jerry and I will, I think we might try at some point to brawl over this, over his <laughs> hatred of Jason goes to hell, um, where I love that movie and how it tries to do some weird and fun and interesting things. And he, it's, he thinks it's the worst movie he's like ever seen. So it's, <laughs> Really interesting to me. So, all right. So, diving into the remake here a little bit, 
let's take a quick look at where horror was at at this point in time. I mean, basically the mid to late nineties were the age of remakes. Um, 2003 Freddy versus Jason hits theaters. It does a bazillion dollars. Everyone's pretty happy with it. And there's a lot of talk of like, can we get pinhead involved? What about Freddy versus Jason versus Ash? There was talk of that at the time. Meanwhile, Michael Bay and his uh, platinum dunes company, come out with a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Movie is helmed by music video director Marcus Nispel. Interesting enough, it is still um, the director of photography is Daniel Pearl, who shot the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see the markedly different looks between the original and the remake, even though they're lensed by the same person. Um, this movie's massive. It goes on to make about $107 million across the globe, on less than $10 million for a budget. And that opens up the floodgates. So I guess my question for all of you guys is, and Ryan, it sounds like this era was kind of like a tipping point for you, like where you jumped on board with slasher movies and kind of experienced them for the first time. So what, overall, like what is everyone's impression of like all these remakes in a general sense that came out, say, between 2004 to 2010 when it kind of slows down a bit? See, for me, this is actually, it's when I got my driver's license. So it, it makes sense that these are the movies that I started to go see mm -hmm. all the time because mm -hmm. I had the opportunity finally to take myself to the movies instead of going, Mom, please take me to go see this movie. <laughs> um, the first movie I ever snuck into actually was Freddy versus Jason. Mm -hmm. um, I think we bought tickets for like Head Over Heels and went to Freddy versus Jason and said some romantic comedy. Um, and so that was actually the first like movie I ever snuck into. I am a huge fan of this era of remakes. I will always uh, I come to the defense of it all the time. I even like a lot of the trash like uh, the Sorority Row remake and the Black Xmas, which I think have their own merits and are a lot of fun, even though they are kind of nasty. Um, you know, it was an interesting time because we were also pretty deep into the torture porn. And so they were trying to find this balance of like, okay, we don't have the meta commentary of Scream anymore, but these slashers are something that are doing well. So how do we balance that with like what's popular with the genre right now, but mixing with the slasher genre? Um, so that's that's like kind of how I came into it was just having my driver's license and I'd already blown through everything I could find in the video store that from my era of like kind of 90s, early 2000s stuff. And then um, kind of like you guys mentioned before, it was like now it's about keeping up with the trend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep I, meaning to actually. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You're good. <laughs> I kept meaning to like come back to like keep meaning to come back to some of the remakes from this period because I remember Black Xmas and I remember not liking it and I'm a huge fan of the original so mm -hmm. but it's I think it's time for a reappraisal and even things like um <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the sorority row thing because we may be we may or may not be working on something like that with the bite mm -hmm. but um I keep meaning to sit down and reappraise these because I hated them at the time. And I remember not feeling too good even about the uh, the Texas Chainsaw remake because, again, I think there was just kind of this snobbish purist thing in the back of my head that was like, meh, we don't need to do this. Like, don't touch the originals, meh, or something. I don't know. But um, I loved Freddy versus Jason. Like, I was listening to your guys' episodes on it, and I kind of had to sit there and like, hmm interesting because there wasn't a lot of love for the movie <laughs> really okay i thought we gave it a pretty decent amount of love 
over i think someone was saying i can't remember i think it was the first episode you did on it and someone i think the guest i can't remember was bringing up that it just felt like it was dislocated from its place Mm -hmm. in the franchises like it felt Mm -hmm. alienated and i i kind of get that but at the same time i'm kind of like it makes me not care Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it's so goofy that it's kind of just like all right i'll suspend disbelief and just go for this ride why not I it think it's <laughs> yeah. I think it's definitely a fun movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they overthought it a little bit. It shouldn't have taken ten years to make that movie, and I think that the given the fact that it took a decade, like what we got, eh, there was some. I, I think the biggest problem is you had a director that didn't necessarily have any sort of kind of affinity for any of the characters in it. Um, so you mm-hmm. get like a Jason that just feels like not Jason in that movie. And that's totally fair. And I completely agree with you. It does feel, it, it feels perhaps it does feel disconnected from its source material, but there is something super enjoyable about it. And it's things mm-hmm. like that. And just the way you, Ryan, were talking about the, um, we're talking about, the these other remakes that kind of makes me want to sit down and give them another go, particularly when the Black Christmas announcement came out. I was like, I really need to sit down with that remake and kind mm-hmm. of just have a few drinks or something. Right. How about you, Jen? Uh, sorry. I'm I'm I like a lot of these remakes in the age of all the remakes. And I think when I think about actually watching the movie and how scared I am when I watch them. I think a lot of the remakes that um, were coming out at this time, just with the uh, advancements in film and technology, I think they scare me a little bit more. There are not, people are going to get mad at me about this, but there are not a lot of older horror movies that actually scare me. And I can appreciate them. And I love a lot of older ones. Like the original Fright Night is one of my favorites too. Um, But they don't actually really scare scare me and I think part of that too is I'm usually watching them at home on my TV I'm not watching them on a big screen like when we did our Halloween episode I'd been watching it for years just like while I was folding laundry or something and then when I really sat down and watched it in my friend's gigantic home theater like I was a lot more scared and so I think we're going to see these remakes in the theaters and I think they're just a little bit scarier or maybe it's just the experience of it. No, I completely agree. And I totally see what you mean. Um, And I think with things like this, like particularly with this remake specifically, um, they kind of ramped everything up to 11. Mm -hmm. Like it's they took what was the trope of the time from the originals and they just jacked it all up. Like Derek Mears in this is a beast and he just books it like jason never felt threatening to me he was always just this big lumbering shark kind of thing right turns with the head and and then the body follows but mirrors in this is just ruthless he is genuinely threatening and he's terrifying and i can imagine how seeing something like this even before seeing the original would definitely make a newer generation of horror fans look back at the originals and go man what's the big deal mm-hmm yeah, yeah Mears goes Mears goes back to that kind of Steve Dash, um, Ted White, Jason, where it's a lot more athleticism to him overall, except he's mm-hmm. even more so. Like you said, he's cranked up to 11 at that point in terms of the way he moves. Like I'm thinking of 
that move he makes right before the title card comes up and it's mm-hmm. it's just super oh, yeah. athletic. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing like a press screening an advanced screening of this movie and the audience going ape shit when the title card <laughs> came up like so for people that I think in the years that followed said well the remake was trash it was no good it's like I just I'm calling bullshit because that whole theater went nuts. Mm-hmm. Um when Mears came on board and when that title card came up, I mean, that place was rocking. Ariel, you said something pretty interesting a few minutes ago about originally looking at all these remakes and kind of like turning up our noses at them. I think as a horror community, I think we've, we've done, did that a bit when they first came out. Um, Now a lot of them are going on a decade or even longer at this point. What do you, think the reappraisal for some of these movies have been and which, you know, it's a little bit off topic, but which ones do you think are most do a second look? Um, like which of the remakes do I think sure. deserve a reappraisal? Yeah. Like that, that uh, time period from like Oh four to mm. really it ends with the nightmare on Elm street remake. I'd say is when that period kind of ends. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we are getting a bit of a reappraisal. Like I know anytime I bring up something like, uh, 13 ghosts it goes over like gangbusters like mm-hmm. everybody just goes nuts for it and i mean it's not a remake of like a 70s 80s slasher it's a remake of you know an older horror film mm-hmm. but it still has an audience and a fan base and it's it, it i think there's a specific tone of the mo- from the movies that were made around the early 2000s that like especially the remakes where it just kind of became reckless abandon and it's all just fun for the sake of it and Frankly, there's, I mean, there's no reason not to have that. Um, I think this movie in particular definitely needs a reappraisal because I was going through the Rotten Tomatoes and it has an abysmal rating Mm -hmm. and the reviews were so harsh. Like, oh, we've seen this before. Oh, this is a retread. Oh, this is exactly the same. This was boring. I was bored. The most common thing I saw was I was bored and I'm like, what fucking screening were you in? Mm -hmm. Because like... I mean, when we think about the way that Jason used to be, Jason was boring. When we think about that in the context of the tropes, and I'm probably going to make someone angry with that. I'm sorry, but deal with it. Um, (laughs) When we think about that in the context of the films, it's like, this is so much more electric. And they're making, they're being referential. They're taking, you know, they're not just taking an older film and smacking a new title on it. And they're not making the mistakes that they made with the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, where it's like, hey, let's try and humanize Freddy, even if he's still a villain. No, he's still, I mean, there is actually, it was interesting because Josh, uh, I want to say Josh McMillan at Dread Central wrote a piece about the subplot of Jason running a drug op. Um <laughs> Yes. Like that he's actually a pot dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll send you guys a link to that and maybe you can share it in the show notes or something. But it's like, Please do. It, it goes to these really strange and interesting places that if you look down your nose at horror, you're going to be too busy. If you've got your nose too high in the air, you're not going to see any of it. Mm-hmm. And it deserves attention because it's actually quite clever. And the way they subvert the trends is really interesting. And the characters are actually pretty likable and uh, unlike, you know, with the exception of Mr. Spectacular Nipple Placement. Um, <laughs> but everybody else is like, fine. Uh, but no, I think this one especially deserves a reappraisal. I think something like A Nightmare on Elm Street could totally use a, another remake because that one botched it so badly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm excited to see what they do with Black Christmas. I'm so stoked with that. I think some mm-hmm. of the other ones like Scream can just be like left alone. They got yeah, it yeah. right the first time. Let's not fuck with that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's funny too, like as soon as you brought that up, how people bring up or how people were kind of like, because I did the same thing, like, a, like right around this time, it's when I became interested in like journalism and, and film and analyzing film so i had this like for some reason you have it in your head you're like well i don't need this i'm above that i watch the originals um (laughs) and i think it was a transitional phase that era in particular because like i even look back and think about it like my dad's generation didn't have to deal with the remake trend like we do um like the the way that remakes are generated now is so often and so like mass produced that it's really different than like the generation before us who were the people that were analyzing and reviewing this movie and so for them it was something that was like the first remake of something really like for the first time we were starting to see a lot of those remakes from the movies of their generation and even like any remakes they had in their generation were from movies in the 30s and the 40s so it the the movies just weren't like the the popcorn culture that they were back then as they are now so i think it was a very different generation of people reviewing these films because I same as you when I look through the reviews I'm I'm stunned by like what I see because as a critic like it makes sense what I see as a critic because I feel like if you ask the audience they would have been like fuck yeah this movie rules but like the critic is the one who maybe at the time was viewing it too analytically and is looking at it through like a different lens um, so I do think a lot of these movies review, like need that reappraisal. I like like I mentioned before, um, just from that that generation, I can think of. Um, I think Black Xmas has a lot going for it. That cast is incredible. Um, I would love to see a cut that doesn't have the Weinstein's filthy hands all over it because they mm. told, yeah, they perv that movie out and it's a giant bummer. Um, and then also Sorority Row does a lot of really fun things. You can stay away from prom night. Don't worry about that one because it's <laughs> not very good. Um, but yeah, I would love to see like a reappraisal of these films because that generation, I think, got glanced over a lot. But like, look at the money. Obviously, people wanted to see it, but mm-hmm. the critics were just like not in love with them. But you can look at the box office to see that like people wanted these movies and they were doing well enough that like I think that's obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think people wanted to see, like, I grew up hearing about how scary Friday the 13th was and all of these older movies and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I wanted to see a movie that felt scary to me, too. So, like, that was modernized and was something that felt like it was, like, people my age, you know? And so that's part of why I just ate all these remakes up. And some are better than others. I particularly like the Amityville Horror remake a lot. Oh, I love that. I love that one, yeah. <laughs> And not just for Ryan Reynolds' abs, although that is a plus. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, although. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. See, and that's one that I remember being absolutely terrible. And I vaguely remember seeing that one in theaters. I guess I need to give it another shot. <laughs> I just remember it scared the shit out of my friend and I. Yeah. Whenever I think of remakes and, like, the reception of them, I remember a quote Stephen King had years ago. And it was a period before we got this kind of like Stephen King renaissance we're living in right now during the late 80s, early 90s, where a lot of his properties were being turned into movies and they were really bad movies. I mean, they were just awful. And they asked, like, does it does it ever bother you that what's being done to your, your books on screen? And he's like, no, man, the books still exist. At the end of the day, like, you can always go back and pick up my novel and that work stands on its own. Um, To me with the remakes, even though if I wasn't a fan of them, a remake of Friday the 13th 
wasn't going to do anything to hurt the reputation of the franchise that say like a movie I'm not a fan of in the series, like part seven, like when you're this deep, you know, a remake of Halloween isn't going to do anything to hurt John Carpenter's vision that Halloween resurrection didn't do 10 years before it basically. So to me, it's just another entry in a saga, but the work that we loved, like I used to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a group of friends every weekend on Saturday night. We would have bands play in our basement. We would throw like a potluck dinner. And then yeah. at two in the morning, we would throw on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and VHS. And we would root for Franklin to get killed and high five <laughs> each other. We were little shits. Um, you know, my feelings about the remake aside, like nothing is ever going to change the way I feel about mm-hmm. the original movie. Although I've come around on the remake now where I remember seeing that walking out of the theater and thinking like I could fill a giant sack with ground beef and hit it with a bat for two hours. And it would be the same kind of feeling. Um, although I've come around to think it's actually a much better film than I remembered upon walking out of the theater, seeing it. Interesting. Okay. I to that note, I, I just have there's, I've been entertaining and and different thought process on things uh, over the last I guess year or so because I'm of the mindset similarly that like the original will always exist and it doesn't matter and it doesn't make a difference, but uh, when it comes to things like cinema, I mean a lot of people newer generations. If they're 16 when the remake comes out and they have no idea about the original, the original has the potential to kind of get lost in time. Mm -hmm. And I think that does become a little bit of a risk. I mean, I'm not one of those people like, don't get me wrong. All the fanboys who are like, meh, you ruined my childhood. It's like, okay, fuck off. Grow up. Like, it's fine. You're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, you're fine. But, you know, I there is, I guess, a little bit of a concern that people of a certain generation might just find, say, Rob Zombie's Halloween and may never know that the original Halloween existed. And frankly, I think if that's the case, that could be a I mean, that has that could be a real shame. Mm-hmm. Is that even possible now, though? I mean, honestly, with like how available information is for if you watch say like rob zombies halloween or the 2009 friday you know remake like wouldn't your if you were a fan of one of those wouldn't your immediate impulse be to google right away like i wonder what else there is and automatically even if you had never heard of john carpenter before because you're like 13 years old and you just happen to like grab this movie on dvd or see it on netflix or whatnot wouldn't you have like all this information at your fingertips to go back and and find more Potentially, but the risk is that most people aren't fans. Most people are passive consumers. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, you get, you know, a kid who's been shown a scary movie at a birthday party and they never revisit it again. So Mm -hmm. then they tell their kids, oh, there's this movie that exists and that's, you know what I mean? Like it becomes a, a way of passing down knowledge that unless you are an active consumer of media, which most people aren't. Those things, it, it, it becomes kind of like a dying legacy. It's almost like an oral tradition. Like, yes, that the information exists online. And really, mostly this is a f- philosophical, metaphysical conversation. Like, it's not actually a concern. But eventually, if things stopped getting talked about and written about and researched, then they kind of cease to exist, even if they mm-hmm. do exist in the ether somewhere. And with the turn to digital media as opposed to physical media, there becomes a legitimate concern of actually physically losing things. 
Yeah, I actually agree with you a lot, um, just in the sense that, like, the way that generations are now, if something's not actively available, like, it, I mean, I went to see if Friday was streaming on anything, I own the disc, but I was like, <laughs> okay, let, let's see if it's just streaming, because I'll pop it up, and it's not, so, I mean, and that's this remake, but, like, John, John Carpenter's Halloween is, like, never streaming on anything, the original one, that's not streaming anywhere, and so, I think it does become a valid concern just in the generation we are in now, of, like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I've seen it happen because I have an eight-year-old nephew, like, where literally it's like, is it streaming on anything? Nope. Okay. That's it. That's the end mm -hmm. of the search. Whereas, like, our generation grew up, it's like we were in a video store, and it's like we're, you know, alphabetically going through things. It's like, hey, I like this movie called Halloween. Oh, look, there's five other ones. I'll rent those. I'll mm -hmm. watch those. Um, but that doesn't exist anymore. And so I agree with you. Like, I actually – that's why I so much, like – two reasons try to do what I do like one keep everything positive because when you shed a negative light on people like it turns them off so much to it and then they instant there's so many other things to consume now it just gets lost in the shuffle and then two it's why I think journalism is still so important and like thank goodness we exist like in a genre that is so rabid um mm -hmm. and but like anytime I see a new article and it's like, oh, like John Carpenter's Halloween, it's like I've read a hundred articles about this, but like I don't care because my eight-year-old nephew's probably read none. So if that's the one he clicks on, I'm stoked for it. Yeah. And I think as times change, like people of our generation need to know how that movie that was made when I was being when I was born, like connect to them. So we continue to write about these movies. And I loved well, I had issues with the new Halloween, but I loved that we could talk about that movie now in an updated way and talk about how the original affects the world that we're living in right now. So I think if we still we take the seeds of these original movies and continue to talk about how they continue to relate to us now, that keeps them present. And that makes kids want to seek them out. Mm -hmm. I think, too, that horror in particular, it reflects the worries and reflects the fears of that of that time period and for that generation. So when you look at a movie like, you know, when you look at me like the Texas Chainsaw, and I, we're turning this into a Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> podcast, which I'm totally okay with because I have so, so love that movie and cannot wait to actually cover it one day. Um, when you look at like people coming back from the Vietnam War completely fucked up and out of their minds, and all of a sudden, all of these towns, their economies just drying up and people being spit out and left on the side of the road, essentially, what do you turn to at that point? Um, to you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, I remember watching that thinking, like, these could have been the kids from Dazed and Confused on their way to buy their Aerosmith tickets, and they just took a wrong <laughs> turn at that point. Like, it didn't have that same uh, kind of impact to me overall, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Jen, you had, I think, it said a while back about, or I think Ryan as well, like, having the first few movies of Friday the 13th basically condensed down into one lean, mean machine. So what do we think of the decision to kind of tell the story of the first four Friday movies and within like a 20 minute time period? If you had told me that's what they were going to do before I went into the movie to see it, I think I would have said, nope, that's going to be terrible. But they pulled it off. And I was looking at the timestamp when I watched this last night. And in the first 45 minutes of this movie, they gave us a mini slasher. They gave us the main plot points of the first three movies. And they set up a brand new sequel or a brand new remake of the movie. And I think it's just 
amazing how they managed to pull all of that off with something even as simple as the way the barn looks, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. And I think it's, it's, it's a real testament to the writing of Mm -hmm. the script. And it's something that I'm, it, it genuinely irks me that the critics of the time couldn't see how, how much work and effort went into accomplishing that because that is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime I read reviews from people, like I can always tell when I read a review, I'm like, oh, they're a horror fan because <laughs> if they don't recognize something like that, I'm like, got it. So you didn't watch the originals. So like you weren't <laughs> there to appreciate that. And I love that they do that in this one because uh, for this generation, like we're talking 09, like if you are an avid horror fan, I think you can definitely go back and enjoy those original movies. But if you're not, and if you're a new moviegoer, like at this point, you're really trying to hit that teen audience. Like those original movies can be plotting. And like the mm-hmm. the kills are cool. Like there are cool like set pieces, but especially the first movie. And I really enjoy the first movie. I agree with what Jen said. It's a very pure slasher. Mm-hmm. Um Pamela Voorhees is a boring killer. Once she yep. is revealed, that movie loses so much of its mm-hmm. like power. Because, yeah, she does a great monologue because she chews scenery. But that chase scene and that fight scene are god-awful. And they make the last 30 minutes of that movie feel like an hour long. And mm-hmm. so that they can give us that in the first five minutes of this movie. And, and we still understand that. And then we get a couple flashbacks here and there to really hammer home the point. I think is great because... As, as important as that first Friday is, like, Jason is a literal pop culture phenomenon. And mm-hmm. so to introduce him so quickly and to still give us Baghead Jason, but then s- still be able to give us and not shoehorn in, but cleverly put in his mask. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are all really smart scripting techniques. Mm-hmm. And also I- casting Nana Visitor as... Pamela Voorhees just tickles me endlessly. So that was a nice touch. I don't know who that is. I'm going to. Oh, she's on the. She is known for DS9. Yep. Okay. I've never been a Star Trek person. So, okay. Give yourself the luxury and the privilege of watching (laughs) DS9. If you had to choose any of the series, I guarantee you that's the one that will get you in. It's fantastic. More More than New Generation. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll have to try a few episodes out. Um, I really like the way that Shannon and Swift write. Um, they had done the Freddy versus Jason remake. I think a lot of the things that are good about that movie come from the rules they set up for themselves and the way they write the characters. I think they, especially, you know, I said before, like really Jason's just doesn't feel like Jason in that movie. I think that has more to do with the performer in that movie and not having Kane Harder in that role. Um, here, I really like the rules that uh, Shannon and Swift set up for themselves. Number one, they wanted to avoid like the meta commentary that had become very popular with Scream. I love Scream. It's one of my probably top 10 favorite horror movies, but I don't think it would really fit a Friday the 13th movie. Like, they're two things. You know, it would be like peanut butter and hummus, like two things I really like. I do not want those together. Um, You get a Jason that's more like his part two self. He's just off on his own, defending his own turf. He's not actively maybe seeking anybody one out to kill but as soon as he feels threatened and cornered he's going to eliminate all threats i think i read a interview with shannon and swift where they said they described their jason as kind of like rambo like someone that is a, a, a survivalist knew how to live off the land and could kill people very easily in very fun ways 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's really funny that you brought up that uh, Josh Joshua Millican article because as I was watching this, I was like, uh, I think Jason's just defending his stash here. Like, that's how <laughs> he makes his money. And so, I mean, a man's got to live because there's so much of it that works uh, around that. But I, I do agree with, like, with everything you said. Like, he feels like Rambo. I love the little traps in the underground tunnels that he has. And it definitely feels more like a, like a you know, a Friday the 13th. 13th part two where we have like this much more athletic he's also much more athletic jason like i remember the first time he ran in this movie that's what sold me i was like oh and i love kane hodder like i absolutely adore kane and mm-hmm. his performance but it's very different um mm-hmm. it, it, this kane's a big guy and so he's big which causes menace and but like and derek is also a big guy but like it's the athleticism that really like terrified me of that character mm-hmm. Yeah, I always, to your point, Ryan, I felt like with the latter Friday the 13th movies, like Jason getting the kids always felt like a cheat. Like it felt like you were miles away from him and then he just popped up out of nowhere um, and he completely disregarded any rules of time, space and physics. We're here. I just never felt like it felt like if you, even if you had a massive running start, you weren't getting away from Derek Mears as Jason. Mm-hmm. No. And it felt sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. As I say, it felt like realistic too, because one of the things that could easily turn into is Jason wakes up in the morning and he does his stretches and then he goes for a sprint (laughs) and he gets coffee. And I feel like it was believable that he had been like surviving out in the wilderness. Like it makes sense that he would know how to use a bow and arrow because he would need to eat. But we didn't get like the only time we really saw him do any of that is when he's sharpening the machete. And I feel Mm -hmm. like they gave us just enough to let us know. He didn't just rise up from the bottom of a lake when a kid happened to wander through the camp. Like he's been here ready the whole time, but we didn't have to watch it and it didn't ever get tedious. Yeah. And to your point, Jen, I think that they originally in their script had added like a deer carcass in his lair to kind of show how, you know, to your point about the bow and the arrow to show like this is how he's surviving. But I think it would have been like about a hundred grand to add that in. And they're like, (laughs) eh, we don't necessarily need to do that. Um, So we've talked about Jason the weed farmer for a few minutes um, (laughs) here now. I think like Heather Donahue and Jason are out growing weed and selling it in the, you know, would be a, that's actually a pretty good spinoff. But what do we think of like the townsfolk knowing, like there's that one scene that stuck Mm -hmm. out that I don't necessarily love. And it's when um, Clay, AKA the dude from Supernatural, knocks on this woman's door and she's like, oh yeah, we know about this guy. Nobody wants to bother him. How, that's the only scene in the movie that kind of stuck out to me as not feeling right per se. I was kind of wondering what everyone's thought about that was. I actually really liked that part. It kind of struck me as another take on the Harbinger or Crazy mm-hmm. Ralph, only not seeking out the kids, you know? Mm-hmm. No, completely. It's definitely like it, that's definitely the function. She's she's totally a harbinger. The only thing that irked me about that was I was like, okay, so you're basically giving us the exact same thing you gave us in Texas Chainsaw. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, just like that one felt like a like a bit like a stamp that was just like, all right, here's this, and here's this specific actress, and this is what she does now. But um, <laughs> but I think especially just kind of coming back to Josh Milliken's article is that there was kind of this theory and I really 
dig the idea that it's like he has this kind of deal with the town where like he brings in extra money from his weed dealings and that helps support the the like economic stability of the community. So it's kind of like they just okay, fine. You do you do what you need to do. You kill those teens. That's fine. Mm-hmm. See, I, I actually like that addition because I, I just recently rewatched Friday part one and two. Um and in the first one especially, like it's very well established that everyone in town either knows or suspects that someone is out in the woods killing people um i mean they they got the nickname camp blood for a reason um and so i think it's kind of like a nifty little throwback to that because that was always something from those movies i wish we saw more of was the community around camp crystal lake because we Mm -hmm. always see like the cabins and and the lake but not really the town like the surroundings of it um but they do pop up here and there and people are usually pretty well aware um i mean like crazy ralph obviously stands out but pretty much everyone in town in the first movie when um you know the cook shows up and she's like hey how do i get here everyone's like yeah don't go there um because they're aware of like what's happening see i love that in the first movie because no one in the town can quite put their finger in what's wrong like they know that two other kids you know, they know about jason drowning mm-hmm. um they know about the two camp counselors that were murdered the next year and then there had been like incidents like the town water supply getting poisoned and all sorts of weird things going on whenever it's talked about the camp opening back up again so it becomes like a really neat little town legend where this scene i think ariel i think the comparison to the texas chainsaw remake is so perfect and so spot on because it does give this film that kind of tone and these are two distinct way different properties from one another like a friday the 13th movie shouldn't feel like a texas chainsaw massacre movie and that's where it kind of just stuck out to me as it's really my one my one of my few gripes about the remake it's one of the ones that really stuck out to me overall Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the same director, right? So that makes yes. sense to me. Like, yep. that's the that's one of the big reasons why I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so here's your stamp. Like, here's what you're doing to make it seem like it's your work. I don't know. It, mm-hmm. it just jumped out at me as that mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. So what do we think of the kids overall? We've talked a little bit about the town. Let's dive into the cast. Um, I love the first group of kids overall. Yes. I want to get everyone else's opinion now. Like, what do we think of these guys? I really I- like the first group of kids. I like them better than the second group of kids. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I can usually tell how engaging characters are, how I judge it is if I can remember their names after I've watched the movie. And I could probably tell you Whitney's name because it was on that poster and Clay because I think they actually say it. But I don't, I think Travis might be one of them too. But other than that, I couldn't really tell you any of the characters' names in this movie other than Jason. Mm-hmm. It's it's Trent and and I kept calling him Troy the whole movie and my roommate finally went I don't think his name is Troy and I was like oh whatever I don't know like I know his real name is Travis Van Winkle because his name is Travis Van Winkle <laughs> right uh, but no I completely agree the first kids the first group of kids is likable which I think is on purpose because like it's you're not rooting for Jason as much in that moment because I do think the second half of the movie embraces that kind of like old like that that standard slasher where you have to have kids that aren't likable because then you those are the ones you want to see die because you don't want to see every character you like die um and you know like you um ariel were saying earlier like ramped it up to 11 they were like hey 
these guys are super douchebags. Um, so you're really going to like when they die. Mm -hmm. You also don't spend very much time with them at the beginning. Like, I, I wonder if we had spent the entire movie with this first group of kids, if they would have ended up being as annoying as the later group. So I think what I like about the first group, though, is they have a chemistry with one another. And I think that's lacking a lot of times in a lot of modern horror movies starring like younger, younger people like they seem like friends. I think you enjoyed spending time with them overall, even like really little things like I think it's when is it Mike and Amanda? I'm trying now I'm drawing a blank on the names right now. Um, <laughs> It is What's Mike that? and Amanda. I have the cast it is? stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, you know, when they go, you know, when it's like, hey, we're going to go have sex. Like their friend is like, I'm going to leave now. He doesn't make a big production of it. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go in the woods. See you guys later. You know, he makes a little joke of it, but he's not like, well, can I watch? Can I stick her? And I think like most movies would fall into that trap like nowadays where he's like, right, I'm off. It's a little thing. And I really like that about it. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely felt the same way about that. Like there, I think that was, again, this is a testament to the writing that they made the, that they gave the characters at the beginning so much chemistry so that we did, you know, they may be a touch obnoxious. They may be, you know, uh, like what's, um, oh, again, with the character's name, Ben Feldman's character, Richie. Mm -hmm. Like he's a bit obnoxious, but you still yeah. kind of like him because mm -hmm. like, He's still kind of likable, even though he's a bit of a douche, but he's not douche enough to be like, fuck you. So, like, you care when he dies, but you're also, like, you're engaged and you're engrossed. And I think it's, again, that's really hard to do. So the mm -hmm. idea that they could spend the first 20 to 25 minutes of the film establishing characters that we would not have beyond that point and making it so that we kind of miss them later on. Mm -hmm. Like, and you do, you miss them later. Right. Yeah. There's even a nice little moment between uh, Mike and his girlfriend, is it yeah, Whitney, where, you know, she's obviously concerned about her mom. And he's like, well, look, I've talked to her. It was her idea for me to kind of take you away for a few days so you can kind of have a break from all of this. And I thought it was like a nice little moment, like where he's not trying to get in her pants. He's not trying mm -hmm. to pressure into sex. He's like being a pretty good boyfriend. And he's like look not only to her but look obviously he knows that her mom is important to her so he's talking to the mom as well and i just think that's a nice little touch it humanizes the characters in, in a way that you know i would as much as i love those first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie and i think it's a perfect short little slasher it is a little bit sad that they're kind of all gone after that mm -hmm. yeah what do we think of the <laughs> folks we have to follow yeah i did they're fine kids <laughs> i mean they're body fodder like I, that's what they are uh, trent is the worst and he's meant to be the worst mm -hmm. um i think aaron Yu is thrown in there and he's likable in everything he's in and he's likable in this like chewy's the only character that you're kind of okay with because he's mm -hmm. the comedic relief mm -hmm. um i think these guys whereas like the first group is kind of subverting like the slasher tropes of the 80s where it's like yeah they are having sex but like they're not necessarily sex crazed like they uh, like these guys are the ones that like i mean they're sex crazed like one i mean the character i can't remember his name now um but he's like literally about to masturbate on the couch like what uh -huh. his, his friends are in the next room i'm <laughs> like nah dude like i would never and then even like someone i love like ryan hansen uh you know vmars forever like it's just a kind of like unlikable douchebag in this movie but they're but meant he's to be yeah 
But he's an unlikable douchebag with a heart of gold and everything he's in, though. Like that's his that's his bread and butter. I mean, right. Like, you just take out the heart of gold in this, and like he right. now he's just a douchebag who really wants to have sex in a boat, I guess. Um, <laughs> but again, I don't have a problem with that because. I don't want to fall in love with every character because mm-hmm. like when that, when that happens, like we, we then run into the the struggles I get with scream where I'm like, well, you can't kill my main three because I love them all. And you already killed Randy. So I hate you. I mean, I love you obviously, but like when you create those likable characters, you're like, you instantly start not rooting for the killer. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that kill count goes down, which isn't always a bad thing, but in a Friday the 13th movie, like I don't, need that kill count to go down i want to see some set piece kills so Mm -hmm. since since jerry's not here tonight um i will rebut that with something that he brings up very often when we talk about the friday the 13th movies uh he his favorite movie of all time aside from halloween is um the final chapter and he's really fond of saying that if you took jason out of the final chapter you're left with one of the best coming of age teen comedies of the 1980s because uh, the characters are just really for a, for a slasher movie like extremely well developed overall and then when you look at the first two Friday the 13th movies like these are people that I would love to hang out with like I I get what you're saying about you don't want every single person to die because uh, that's kind of a bummer so you do what they do in part two and half of them go to a bar and are never like seen or heard from for the last 40 minutes of the movie um, but I like all those characters I'm rooting for them I'm not necessarily rooting for the killer at that point um aside and it's not just that they're not necessarily like super unlikable because really trent is the only one who's like really unlikable he takes the Mm -hmm. character that had the house in part seven and he ramps up the douchebaggery to like 20 he's just Mm -hmm. he fucking sucks um but it's like not just that they're unlikable but i don't see this group of people ever getting together as friends like aside from chewy and lawrence like these aren't people that would like to hang out with one another but i think for their age group that's also kind of part of the i guess character development because they're not high schoolers they're in university they're in college mm-hmm. right i hung out with a lot of pains in the ass in call in university like i knew a lot of douchebags and they had their parents had like a good cottage and we'd hang out and we, whatever or like people that i was really good friends with who are actually super toxic and like you didn't really recognize it right mm-hmm. like i buy that these people would be friends and i buy that trent Trent the Tool, that's going to be his name for me from now on. (laughs) I buy that he would keep people like this around him to make himself feel more interesting and Mm -hmm. to make himself feel better. Um, But I think the idea that we uh, only ever get characters we hate in movies like this because we want to watch them die is a bit of a myth. Um, Like we get a lot of douchebags because you need to because nobody's perfect and you have to have that peppering of like, okay, you can go and I'd be fine with that. But for the most part, part of what makes the tension so strong in films like this is that we don't want to see the people die. In fact, Mm. in some, uh, I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember which Halloween it was or which Friday the 13th because I can't. (laughs) At a certain point, they start to bleed together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, eventually you just start not giving a shit if mm-hmm. they get killed, which kind of negates the actual scare factor. When you care about them, even just a little bit, either you hate them powerfully, like Trent the Tool, or mm-hmm. you really like them, like Padalecki, uh, or even uh, Jenna in this Um when they die, it's shocking, and it amps up the impact. Like, Jenna's death in this 
she's you you expect her to be the final girl mm-hmm. you expect her to make it when she eats it it's like what like i when i was watching that for the first time that genuinely stunned me i'm like oh fuck they went there yeah, they me- took away our lead mm-hmm. it's a genuinely shocking moment but is there anything about that character that really stands out at all she's nice i mean she's definitely kinder than uh-huh. everybody else but that's about it Well, and that's, I think, the biggest problem that I have with these groups of kids is not necessarily that I don't like them. It's just that there's not very much there. Like, I feel like Trent has a personality. I hate it, but it's there. And then I feel like the some of the other kids, they've got their shtick, you know, and then and then Jenna's the girlfriend. And then the two blonde girls, they had to give one a camera so that we could tell them apart. You know, I feel like, and I think that's the flaw in the writing <laughs> that I really do not like, is that I just don't feel like there was anything there with them. And I feel like they truly were there to show their boobs and to be just another pad to the numbers of the body count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, so, Ariel, you said something that's definitely true. I think when I was saying, like, these movies, I I don't mean slashers as much as I mean like genuinely Friday the 13th movies mm-hmm. like when you because when you look at like slasher kills like I like our our big numbers like Jason is easily I think like near the top because you start looking at like Halloween Ghostface, or like you know Michael Ghostface Freddy their their numbers are actually uh, usually significantly less um like as far as kill count goes than Friday and mm-hmm. and so but I, I what you're what you're saying is definitely true. Like it is more impactful when we either hate or love them. Um, and it made me think like, I do think there, there comes a point in these movies where you start expecting less character development and set piece. It's like, you go back to Friday or, um, nightmare three, like nightmare three is the last one for me that I can really remember like distinct characters, like more than one, like there's usually Mm -hmm. one or two characters, but that whole cast, you know, there's a reason why that whole cast is always the one at every convention. But that Mm -hmm. movie also became so, so um like that movie was the one that really set freddie off and his really big like magnificent kills so it became less about the people than more about the set piece kills um like people were expecting that it's like we don't care about these characters how is freddie going to kill them and i think mm-hmm. friday did fall for a while it fell in line with that a lot because like we do start to see these more extravagant and ridiculous <clears throat> kills in this in the series as it goes on yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you there. I think it's maybe it's just more wishful thinking that we would like everybody. <laughs> but but you are totally like like I was thinking about it when you said it. I was like, oh, she she is right because like like the scream movies, I I do care about a lot of people. That's why it hurts so bad when Randy dies. And oh, like God, yeah. And almost everyone in Black Christmas is actually very likable, um, which makes those kills seem a little more brutal. And I do think sometimes, maybe not necessarily, like, I'm not going to say that, um, you know, Marcus Nispel had, like, the forethought of this. Sometimes it's almost too much. I'm like, damn, dude, I can't keep investing in these characters because they keep dying. Um, <laughs> so I feel like sometimes they, like, don't want to kill everyone that we fall in love with. But I, yeah, you, you totally, like, kind of blew my mind and changed my perspective there. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Pleasure. So we just talked about the kills a little bit from like different movies overall. What are our, cause you know, and I think when you look at a Friday the 13th movie, what you're looking at is less about character and more about how are these characters going to get killed? And this movie has 
some really standout kill sequences overall and some great deaths overall. And I was rewatching this movie today and just taking some notes before the show. And what stood out to me is like how mean and how mean spirited some of these kills are um, much more so than anything in the original series like that scene where Amanda is like getting burned to death in a body bag and her boyfriend is like trapped in a um, bear trap with Mm -hmm. his legs shattered watching his girlfriend burn to death that Mm -hmm. is just like that's that sticks with you that's fucked up right there yeah that's one of my most disturbing deaths in all of horror Mm-hmm. Well, and it's in it's fascinating to me how they took what's probably one of the more iconic deaths from the franchise with the sleeping bag. And especially mm-hmm. when, we, you know, we saw it revisited in Jason X and he's just pummeling them against the tree. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious. And they took it and they made it brutal. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of a stroke of genius because like, yeah, mm-hmm. that but that one's probably I'd say that one's probably the most brutal death in the entire film. Yeah, that and death. that one made me really sad. Which yeah. one? Chewy, because oh, it's yeah. so slow, and you see yeah. his face. Mm. Yeah, that that's actually one of the notes I made here. Is like they linger on Chewy's death a good fifteen to twenty seconds. Where when you look at um, Crispin Glover's death in Part Four, it's a really <laughs> iconic death. He gets the corkscrew through the hand and then stabbed. But then it's over, like it's over in less than a few seconds. Um, this like really lingers on it, and it just it it. You know, it doesn't give you the warm and fuzzy. It's like there's nothing to cheer for there. But yeah. that's because we like Chewie and yes. Crispin Glover danced. So that fucker deserved it. What? <laughs> Dude, Crispin Glover. Yeah. So good in that movie. Yeah. So good. Yeah. <laughs> how do you not how can people not like Crispin Glover? This is this is shocking right now. This is like I, I need to go lie down for a little bit. I mean, he has he has a couple of choice short films that I won't bring up that mm-hmm. kind of put him in my bad books, but that guy's he's an interesting fella. His music <laughs> is nightmare fuel. It's scary. Is it ever? Oh, oh it's so scary. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Um, I do think, though, the kills are indicative of the times. This, again, yeah. this was like an era where, like, torture porn was huge. So, like, they these are slasher movies. They understand that they're slasher movies, and they understand that they're not Scream, and they're not I Know Last Summer. As much as I love those movies, those movies weren't focused on, like, brutal kills. They were focused on, like, meta-commentary and mm-hmm. on, like, whippy teenagers um so like they have to do something that they think at least from a production standpoint is going to do well with kids and i think they proved that they got it because the movies did so well but that's i mean that's this is that era when that kind of really brutal savage killing was popular and so like they it sure it's not necessarily torture porn but it is um you know it is brutal for for in a slasher lens. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it is, is because they see it coming. Just about all of the deaths don't come from behind. They're looking at Jason as he's Mm -hmm. about to kill him. Or they're like, with the ax kill is one of the most disturbing ones for me. I keep saying they're all the most disturbing. But yeah, they know what's happening and they can't do anything about it. And I feel like a lot of, especially if you look at the first one, um, the kills come out of nowhere. Or we don't see it happen. And I think mm-hmm. we seeing the pain and the fear on these people's faces, I think, is what makes it a lot more devastating lots of times. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- um, it's actually interesting the way you put that. And even bringing up, like, uh, the way, Ryan, the way you said that 
you know, at this point we were getting like, it was a lot of gore porn and this kind of reflects that. But at the same time, you know, versus like, you know, there's a reason why Nightmare and Scream were so different from something like Halloween or even specifically if Friday and, and Jason is that, you know, we had Wes Craven and they were more psychological mm-hmm. and he was taking them to a different place. So it wasn't about, like you said, the brutality of the kills so much as it was about the how and the why and the torture of it and the psychological torture. And here, I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as to call these and I know you're not calling them torture porn, but I wouldn't, I, you can definitely see the influence of the brutality. I forgot about the axe for a second though. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> It's so brutal, though. It is, man. And it's so simple. It's, I think that's like the equivalent of the uh, sleeping back to the tree. Because I didn't think that that would kill somebody, but there it is, and I just watched it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm scared forever. <laughs> I, do, I do think, too, it's interesting to think back, looking at the time these were made. Like, this was made mid to late 2008 before it's released. So we're in a time period where we're in the middle of two wars, um, completely pointless wars that we don't see any end of getting out of anytime soon. We're seeing enemies behind every corner. And you also, like, these are coming out at the height of, or at the start of, like, a really shitty recession where people are losing their homes. Everyone's saving has dried up. Like, it was a very negative, dark time in our country overall. And I think a lot of the movies of this era kind of reflect the kind of grim reality of what was going on at the time. And there's just like no hope in a lot of these movies. So like when you, when you look back at this mid 2000 to the really around 2009, you see a lot of horror movies with the complete absence of any hope whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I think from a sociological standpoint, that's always interesting. Yeah, it makes you wonder what movies um, are going to be coming out in the next couple of years based on what's going on right now. <laughs> I'm stunned that like art has not taken a hard turn to the left, that we're not seeing things quite yet. I mean, I'm a little bit older. I didn't grow up necessarily around the time of 80s punk, but I got into it not too long after that would have fallen out. And when you look back at the early 80s and the days of Reagan and you look at the music and the films that were coming out in that time period, how they were really reflected like a rebellion against that. I'm stunned we're not seeing more of that right now in 2019. Yeah, I think people are still trying to make sense of a lot of it, too. I think a lot of it is there's fewer media companies and they don't want to piss one side off i mean look what's going on you you see a movie like the hunt where it's like oh we're trying to bring both sides together like horse shit like that's completely kind of bullshit right now Mm -hmm. i think you find that companies don't want to piss off potential customers that's what they're concerned with Mm -hmm. it's also interesting when you think about the way film reflects uh, historically speaking, the way film has reflected the times, like, yeah, you bring up the Reagan era and things like that. But if you think back to even to like World War II and the golden age of Hollywood, when the majority of what we were getting was escapism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're getting, I mean, we are getting some kind of pitter patters of kind of sociological commentary. And, you know, we're getting the Ari Asters, we're getting the Jordan Peels, mm-hmm. and we're getting that kind of content, but it's not in droves. I think for the most part, people are, are reluctant to really engage with stuff that mm-hmm. is, unless it's outstanding and it really hits all like on every cylinder at the, at the fucking nines, they want stuff that's easy to digest. They want stuff that's going mm-hmm. to scare you in the theater and not stay with you when you get home because life is scary enough. And yeah. I think once it is out of 
office, shall we say, <laughs> we may see a change. I think I think we're going to see that onslaught of political horror once mm-hmm. things change. I think so, too. I yeah, think it's going to be like floodgates opening. Yeah, you're 100% right. And it's so telling because it's like you said, we are looking for that escapism. Like, what are the biggest horror movies in the world right now? Conjuring, because that's not anything that's close to what, like, that is, you know, supernatural. That is something that is very different. From, there's not a lot of political overtone to anything in the Wanniverse, as much as, and I love all of those movies, but it is like that very much that thing where we're scared as shit in the theater, but we don't carry that home with us because, like, I don't come home and I'm not afraid of Beth Sheba on the top of my dresser. Like, it's a great scene. It sticks with me, but, like, I mean, it's not an actual fear that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is interesting though, like, cause I am seeing again, like slashers are my favorite genre. We're seeing a trend up in slasher films, which tends to happen with political turmoil. Um, like originally when the Halloween mo- movies were coming out, there was a huge like women's uprising, which I mean, the slasher movies, again, that's why I've always argued that most of the time they are more feminist than anti-feminist. Like we are seeing that return. Um, you know, like I think Halloween 2018 is a huge point, like signal towards that. Um, and then, you know, um, Tree and the Happy Death Day movies, like, I do think we are, I've seen a lot of slasher movies, like, on the on the docket, and I, I think we are slowly, like, I, I do think we're going to get, like, a slasher renaissance, and then we're going to get that full, like, Jen, like you said, like, the floodgates. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're getting a lot of horror movies now that look inward. Ariel, you brought up Ari Aster. I think his movies... They could exist at any point in time. Like he could have, if he he could have made similar movies to Hereditary and Midsummer ten years ago or twenty years ago. Because I think that they are very inward looking and a way to cope with trauma and a way to cope with things that have gone on in your life that are just been just terrible. Like I look at Hereditary, I think it's an incredible look at schizophrenia and inherited mental illness. Um, it's something I've struggling to write about for a book that I've been trying to pitch, but it's mm-hmm. one of the best I've, I've worked with a number of schizophrenics in counseling and that's what it's like. I mean, it's really, it's interesting and fascinating and scary to work with them. Um, there is an article I'm going to link to in our show notes. that was published today because we had talked about maybe that like movies like the conjuring or a bit of escapism, happy death day is really fun escapism. And rather than create art that reflects the horror show we're in, we're getting um, things that are kind of giving us a 90 minute or two hour reprieve from it. It's an article in the new Republic called Trump's tax on the national psyche. And it talks about the incredible amount of fear and energy that is kind of just wasted on this revolving horror show that we have going on every day. Like every day it's a new corruption. It's a new evil. Like the cruelty is the whole point of this, of what we're living through right now. Um, So I think that you're raising a really good point saying maybe we just need two hours to kind of forget about that every now and again. And it's interesting because I hear from, one of the most common things I hear from people who don't like horror and people who find out about what I do, are, you know, their reaction is, well, why would you want to put yourself through that all the time? And like the main reason they don't watch horror is because they don't like feeling scared. Um, and I think it's interesting when you, you know, you talk about uh, this article that you just brought up. And I think that's the thing is so many of us have a reason to be afraid right now, mm-hmm. no matter who we are or what our background is, some more than others, arguably, yes, but... Mm-hmm. For the most part, 
everyone, unless you're like a cis white white person who like, you know, is super wealthy, mm-hmm. you're afraid. And if you're not afraid every day, you're afraid at least a couple days a week. And it's exhausting. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's people like Ari Aster, yeah, they're giving us that psychological uh, take on horror. And that's almost re- a relief. Mm-hmm. Like, depending on how you approach it, it's kind of that therapeutic kind of release of the fears you're feeling. It kind of allows you to channel it. But for the most part, yeah, no, we're trying to get the fuck away from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I, agree. Like, Ari Aster, especially, I think is extremely, those movies are taxing, but they're cathartic in a way. Because mm-hmm. the... Uh-huh. The way he expresses like how we deal with grief is so important. I, I I just like truly feel like it's it. A lot of people awkwardly laugh at that scene in Midsummer where they're like kind of they're breathing, they're screaming, breathing all together. But I actually mm-hmm. found that I found that scene so like important and like interesting because we need that in today's society. Like we mm-hmm. need that message of like, it's okay. We need to, gr- we, it's okay. One, it's okay to grieve. And two, um, it's okay to grieve how you're going to. And three, we need to do it together. And so I think there is a lot of that messaging that is being taken away in those movies that is indicative of our times. Um, and so something like, you know, comparing Friday to the movies now, like I, I still don't even think Friday would do as well now because it's so bleak and whereas like a lot of people look at midsummer and hereditary and yes they are bleak as hell um but they are also very um intrinsic and i think uh thought provoking when it comes to how we deal with anxiety with how we deal with grief with how we deal with loss and depression which is a huge issue right now um so i think they're really important movies oh hands to absolutely yeah yeah, I, I couldn't, I cannot disagree with any of that, absolutely. Um, so I have a couple more things I just wanted to touch on, if you guys have the time to. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're looking good? All right. So, um, Jed, you had sent over your notes earlier, and I had done some up as well. And I think, you know, we had kind of similar ideas on, like, the sexual politics of this movie. Because it is, it's like one of the most sexually aggressive movies yeah. Uh as, as much as like we think of like slasher movies as a lot of TNA, this one is like really throwing it in your face, almost yeah. like it's challenging the eyes. Like this is what you came for, right, guys? Right, and I feel like there's a way to do that. Like I look at a movie like Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which I love, and I think there's a moment where you just get the camera right at some boobs, and they're they're showing you, but they're saying this is what you want. We're giving it to you, and also kind of alluding, but they're not making it part of the story. It's very clear what they're doing. And I mm-hmm. think in this movie, there's just I think I wrote in my notes like there are so many boobs in this movie, and we don't need most of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not against nudity. I just want there to be a reason other than to tell me something about the character that you can't do in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it bugged me because I feel like they are trying to lean into this they're saying yeah this is what you're coming for right we know you want boobs and slashers and so they just leaned all the way in and they did it while still objectifying the women which is something that bugs me because i think leslie vernon is able to do that without like a male a super heavy male gaze i feel like they're drawing attention to it or if you look like at a movie like jennifer's body there's no nudity in that movie but it's very sexual and the the it's a different type of objectification. And I just, there's no reason for her to be water skiing topless other than to tell us that she's a loose woman. And it just, it 
bugged me. And there were so many. Sorry, I'm getting on my little soapbox about this. No, no. Don't nope, apologize soap, for that. The soapbox is yours. <laughs> I hated how many times a character talked about a woman where they it was either right behind their back or to like a, a photo spread of them in an article talked about them as an object, either without them seeing it or with the first group of kids that the ones that have sex in the tent, like they're doing this over someone's shoulder and it's just so in your face. And the women are enjoying this objectification in a way that I found really upsetting too. And it just, it just, somebody wrote, I saw in the notes, um, it was very sex negative. It looked at sex as something that makes you a whore. And if you look at all of the characters in them, all of the female characters, there are two, there are two final girls and there's everybody else is topless, you know? And the only one that dies is the, the only one that I feel like is shocking when she dies is Jenna. And it's because she hasn't taken her top off. And so mm -hmm. I was shocked that they killed her. Mm -hmm. I feel like the movie set all of this up in a way that really rubbed our noses in it, but still managed to objectify as well. It's interesting to me because I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly and I, you will never hear me argue against uh, a film's objectification of women. Like if it's obvious and it's there, yes, 100%. And it, here, absolutely, 100%. And you're dead on. And I think it's an interesting way to analyze why Jenna's death is so shocking, but I totally think you're right. <laughs> but I will say this. All of the women who have sex in this film, their sexual pleasure is of importance because uh -huh. they they talk about finishing. They That's talk about cut about climaxing and like, no, don't you finish yet? I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And there is an aspect of it. It's it's a microcosm, but there is an element there. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to call it sex positive, but I would go as far as to say that it to an extent embraces the fact that it is okay for women to just want sex and maybe I don't want to say want to be objectified because that's really dangerous language. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yes, we want, we want to be treated respectfully in a sexual context as women. Like that's a thing that we want. Sometimes we also just kind of wanted to want to be treated sexually <laughs> and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that it's necessarily done in the right way here. I think you are right that it's, kind of yeah that term like saying that it's sex negative is still pretty apt because yeah you're right it's they're using nudity as a character as a plot device as opposed to it like it's not functional um yeah. but there are aspects to it that i think can be shed in a positive light I sort completely of? agree with you and there is no like um everything is consensual too which i'll mm -hmm. give i'll give the movie that no you're right yeah i think I mean, I'm a male. I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to speak out of turn here. I, I, I agree with both of you. I, it, I feel like they tried. Like I feel like they're like, no, we're sex positive, right? Like you know, it's a bunch of guys sitting around. They're like, this is good, right? And they're like, yeah, this is good. And then like they fail to ask a female, like, hey, is this good? Because she would have been the one who's like, maybe let's take out the one who's water skiing topless, and also the line about him being a button on her pants, like that doesn't need to exist. Right. Um, <laughs> 
because because there are I do agree with both of you like I do like I do think there's a lot of objectification in this movie and it seems unnecessary which I feel like who knows like maybe they're trying they're like yeah it's you know we're leaning in those 80s tropes but I do think like there are things like Ariel brought up like she's like don't finish without me and like she chooses to record them which I think was an interesting thing to do because like yeah it almost seems unnecessary but also at the same time like she enjoys her own body like i mean she like because she's also recording herself she is not recording him so like she thinks her body is sexy like that's one way you could view it who knows what their their lens was on that but like i you know like it could be that she just has like she's really into her own sexual agency um so i feel i agree with you like it was it's almost like it, they could have done something with it, but they like, like, again, I feel like they failed to like actually ask a single female what their thoughts on it were. Yeah. I, I wish more scripts. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wish more movies would subscribe to the Guillermo del Toro way of approaching things. A la Crimson Peak, which is like the most feminist film with such body positivity. And like the sex scene is all about her pleasure and she's never naked in it. And it's like, cool guys, let's d- do more of this please because this is great like mm-hmm. have a slasher film where instead of a chick getting you know like having sex from behind i will put things as politically correctly as i can um you know go down on her man like make it about her instead of about you why not yeah. be more sex positive i think ryan i think you hit it right on the head where you said it's a guy's idea of what a sex positive movie would look like yeah exactly I think that's a really apt analogy right there. Gold star. Halfway there. <laughs> um, Didn't finish so, to completion. <laughs> so uh, my own personal take on like sex and nudity in slasher movies, like I get why it was a big part of early slasher movies and the VHS era. Because when you look at like who is by and large renting these movies in that time, it's a lot of like young teenage boys. And they don't have, they are interested in sex, they're interested in the female body, and this is where they got to see it. I mean, that's why, like, I'm old enough to remember the days of, like, having a scrambled cable box and, like, oh, yeah. basically being like, I think I saw a nipple. <laughs> I think I saw her. This is the fucking greatest thing ever. You know, like, it's just like staticky boobs. Um, you don't need that anymore. Like, the, you know, you can turn anywhere at this point and find like something sexy you don't necessarily need to have that as like an integral part of your slasher movies or movies at all i remember the first year i hosted at telluride horror show i did a q a with like the directors of this really shitty um like nouveau slasher movie and they talked about how the like the actress they signed for their lead wasn't going to do a nude and how they like coerced her into doing it and like basically nice. browbeat her and it's like i think i just ended the q and i'm like right well no more questions i'm like this is really shitty like i really yeah. like this is not cool like we don't need that nowadays so that mm-hmm. that i think was the first time that it really struck me like what the fuck are we doing here so mm-hmm. Well, and I think in this time, like the movies we're seeing now, I think there's more, a lot more of a realization that women are fans of these kinds of movies too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to see boobs. I, that was one of the things that bugged me a little bit about Freddy versus Jason is I think it just assumed that the fans were like teenage boys or like mm-hmm. guys in college. And I wanted to see that movie too. And I just don't think there was an understanding that I was, I didn't feel included in the, the, 
intended audience for that movie. And I think we're starting to see a huge shift yeah. in that. Well, even like you mentioned, you know, like I'm going there and I'm not a teenage boy and I don't want to see boobs. Like I'm queer and I'm not going there watching it being like, yes, tits. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that's not a thing that I'm like, this isn't something that I need. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine. They're great. Yes. Her nipple placement is exquisite, (laughs) whatever. But like, cool. (laughs) Give me something else. Like, yeah. Well, like in midsummer, like there's male nudity in there and like I could have taken it or left it. Taken it or left it. Like I wasn't there for that swing and penis, you know? Well, yeah, you don't sit Sorry. there and, like, look at that and immediately go, yes, eroticism, let's go. Right. That scene is awkward as hell for a reason. And, like, right. it's exactly. nudity for the sake of illustrating that point. But we never see that with women. And I feel like if you're, um, if it's not part of the story and you see that nudity and you say, hooray, let's go. I feel like there's a lack in your storytelling anyways because mm-hmm. that's your audience is not with the story enough. Exactly. Yeah, completely. Agreed. So what else do we have? I think overall, like, is there anything I'm missing within the text of the movie itself that you guys wanted to cover that we haven't talked about? I thought it was an interesting thing they did with the final girl. Um, or because I, I really thought that both Jenna and uh, Whitney were going to survive at the end. And I think maybe it's just because I've grown up watching Scream so many times. And it's almost like I think of it not as a final girl lots of times anymore. It's more like a quartet. And so I was thinking, which is a Stephen King thing, um, but I'm, I, I, it's like they almost flip-flopped the final girl for the sake of the storytelling. And I thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting, and I think it served the purpose of the story, especially since they did so many, I don't want to say retcons, but so much like catching us up at the beginning of the movie that they kind of seamlessly wove those two characters back and forth, mm-hmm. kind of fulfilling the same function. I found that to be particularly interesting, too, and pretty much for the same reason. Um, and also, I mean, when you think about the structure of a story, Jenna was kind of our gateway into this current world, like the second group. She mm. was our 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 gateway point. She was our access point. That's usually the final girl. Like, mm. we're trained to feel like that's the person who's going to make it out. So when you take her away, it shifts the narrative to secondary characters, which is really strange from a writing standpoint. Like, that's really unusual. And they pull it off. And again, that just comes back to, like, strong writing, strong writing, strong writing. What do we think of our final boy, Jared Paladecki, is Clay? (laughs) Uh, I would love to have a little more personality. But I also, I say that as someone who did not watch Gilmore Girls or Supernatural. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, well, his character in Gilmore Girls is the most vanilla character in the entire world. So if it's basic. When you see Jared Padalecki, this is what you get. Yeah, I mean, he, he plays Jared Padalecki, and I like him in Supernatural. But like, this is like a dumbed down version of his character in Supernatural. Oh. I th- I think he's boring. He's he is yeah. liter- He's a vessel to tell a story. That's pretty much it. Um, and he was popular again. CW cast. He's attractive to look at. So you know, like, sure. I'll. I mean, I. If I have to look at a boring man the whole time, I'd rather it be Jared Padalecki than Travis Van Winkle. Uh, so, I mean, there's that. But I I do like – that's my only gripe with this. I, I, I love this movie. One of my only gripes with it is it doesn't give us – I think our best final girls or boys always have really great character arcs. Mm-hmm. And, um, like they into such a small amount of time, like they have like an arc still. Um, I think that's why um, Sydney is amazing. And Heather or um, Heather, uh, Nancy, um, I call her by real name. Like we're buds. Hey, Heather. Um, and then, um, you know, um, Jenny and Friday the 13th part two, I think is one of the most complete characters in the Friday series. Um, 
So like what that's actually one of my only gripes is I don't love the end of this movie because of I don't love the final boy slash girls, and I also don't love the end because I think it is a really bad like callback to a trope that doesn't really even super exist in horror movies. I don't know why horror movies were always like there it's always like there's that stinger. And I'm like, that actually doesn't happen that much. Um, like in horror films, like there, there isn't a whole lot of stuff that's usually like, you know, like super like winking at the uh, audience, like, and we'll be back. Um, like, yeah, yeah, you run into the occasional movie that had the end question mark. Um, but I mean, Friday part one was one of the first ones and one of the only ones that really did it. And I don't think it's earned here. So I don't love that. Well, Friday's one, two in five for sure all have stingers at the end of them um elm- has one too. what's that i was gonna say elm street one has one elm too. street is yeah. the franchise that jumps yeah. out, always has a stinger i've cut co- i've come to in a modern movie like sinister 2 has a stinger at the end i've kind of come to the agreement with myself that the last minute of any horror movie with a stinger like that that last minute doesn't exist uh, <laughs> i really i think that's like just like Nope, they've gotten away, like, we're good to go, time to go, like, it just doesn't exist. It's a figment of the collective audience imagination at that point. Um, it's interesting about Jared Paladecki, like, I put in my notes, he looks like the dude who always, like, doesn't get what he wants for Christmas. He always looks like that. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, trying not to pout in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um and it's interesting that a month before this, My Bloody Valentine 3D comes out with Jensen Eccles. And I think like a lot of fans love that movie. Uh, oh, yeah, love he, that movie. Like that dude has charisma to spare. Um, and I think it was an interesting thing where both of these guys are in a fairly popular show, Supernatural. And maybe we're looking for some sort of exit strategy. And yet here we are 10 years later and that <laughs> show is still on. They've been to hell like five times and back, I think. (laughs) It's the final season, though. They are ending. My wife was really upset when she found out it was the final season. She loves that show. So, but he just like doesn't do it. He, he, like you said, he's, he's just kind of like a decoration. Like he's very handsome, fun Mm -hmm. to look at, definitely fun to look at. He's looking absolutely ripped in this movie too. Like, Definitely can fill out a t-shirt, but not much else going on there for him. Well, and if you look at, like, Jenna and Whitney are not super interesting either. No. So you've got your three final quartet people, and I, like, had a hard time remembering their names, you know? And if you compare that to someone like Laurie and Sydney, where you're really mm-hmm. rooting for them a thousand percent, I think that's kind of one of the la- the things in this film that's lacking. Mm-hmm. I'm now like I'm imagining a three comp a threes company reboot with like Clay, <laughs> Jenna, and Whitney, and it would be the shittiest sitcom of all time. Like so. And then cool. Jason is Mr. Roper, right? <laughs> Come in, <laughs> well, you would have Robert Englund as Mr. Furley at that point. Yeah, I do think it's again kind of like these remakes became very popular, and like what happened instead of like, uh, instead of like they were so focused on um kind of like that really slick look and then also these like kind of like spectacular kills that character arc didn't become super important like as much as i love a lot of these remakes there's not a whole lot of like character development Mm -hmm. within most of them um my best friend and i literally call it the cw slashers because they were all actors from like cw shows Mm -hmm. it was like every single person that was showing up who was an attractive young 20 something was popping up in these um and so 
I do think like that was just kind of that common trend of the era was, I mean, cause like you just said, I mean, my bloody Valentine had, um, Jensen Ackles had Kerr Smith, who was from Dawson's Creek. It had Jamie King, um, sorority row would go on to have, um, you know, like, um, rumor Willis was in it. Um, like all of these I, prom night has Brittany snow, like all of these just had these like CW actors. So it was just Michelle like black Christmas was Michelle Trackenbird mm-hmm. from Buffy. Yep. Yep, and Elizabeth or uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so what it was just for the real world on that. Uh, she was in Sorority Row. Ah, that's right. Oh, Jamie, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all just very glossy and shiny and pretty, and lots of times devoid of personality. Right. Mm-hmm. Would agree. So overall, this movie, how does it do? I mean, it comes out of the gate like gangbusters. It makes about $40 million over its first weekend. It actually makes more in the first weekend than any of the original Friday the 13th movies did in their original run. Now, obviously, that's not adjusted for inflation overall. But after that first week, it sinks like a stone. About 80% drop off from one week to the next. So it gets people go and see it right away. But then the word of mouth is like, eh, you can skip this one, which is interesting to me. Well, and I think it came out on Friday the 13th, too. So I remember mm-hmm. I wanted to go see it on that day because mm-hmm. it was Friday the 13th. And I think if you're not super into that movie and you missed it that Friday, you're not going to be super into it the next weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if it's an issue of... Did people not go after the first weekend because they heard it wasn't any good? Or was that the ceiling for this franchise? Like, basically, I think to your point, Jen, everyone that wanted to see it saw it. And maybe these characters aren't as beloved as we like to think outside of our own little community. Yeah, it's the sad truth. Yeah, I think it's probably a mix of both of those things. Mm -hmm. Well, and like you mm-hmm. said, we were going through a recession. People weren't going to the movies multiple times. It was also, I'd say, the heyday of like the Rotten Tomatoes score, where a Rotten Tomatoes score could like you lived and died by it. Um, like mm-hmm. I definitely remember my friends trying to talk me out of going to see movies because of Rotten Tomato scores around that time. And I was like, mm-hmm. every horror movie gets bad Rotten Tomato scores. I'm not going to stop yeah. horror movies in theaters because uh, mm-hmm. you look at like what came out around it. Nothing, nothing did. Like there was nothing it was competing against. Um, Fired Up came out. The cheerleading comedy came out a week mm-hmm. later. It, um, so, and Medea goes to jail, took its spot at top of the box office. So I, I do think it's also, like you said, everyone saw it, but also we were in a recession. So no yeah. one who loved it was going to go see it again. Right. Mm-hmm. I think between this, oh, sorry, you first. I was going to say part of, I get frustrated sometimes when people complain about not going to see movies in the theaters. Like I have two young kids um movies like we just bought our it tickets and they were like 38 dollars. like mm-hmm. i've got to really pick and choose which movies i'm gonna see in the theaters i'm dying to see book smart but if it comes down to me seeing book smart or like godzilla a movie that's really gonna benefit from me seeing it on a big screen mm-hmm. i'm gonna pick that although i didn't actually see it in the theater because we couldn't get a babysitter but like yeah. i think that that metric to measure success and like value of movies i think it's hard to keep that going with how much it costs to go to the movies now. I, I, to your point, Jen, like a date night to the movies for my wife and I, by the time you add everything up is over a hundred dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, that's scary. Yeah. It adds <laughs> up. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kids. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. My my nine year old wants to go see it, chapter two, in the theaters, and 
I'm debating, like, do we wait till it comes out in video, or do I want to be that parent that's like, hi, shitty parent, taking my kid to, like, a (laughs) three-hour horror movie? (laughs) I saw, when I saw the first, when I saw chapter one in theaters, there was a little girl sitting two rows in front of me with her dad, Mm -hmm. and as soon as we got in, I was like, oh, man, that's really, like, that's rude. That that father is, like, irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And then... The movie started and it's going, and I'm a, I'm a very engaged, interactive viewer. I mm-hmm. react, man, and I am not ashamed of it. This kid was just steely-eyed, like, what, fuck you, like, watching the movie, like, not even flinching, and I'm like, all right, I stand corrected, mm-hmm. by all means, go ahead. <laughs> the, the best experience I've had with a little kid in an inappropriate movie, there was a five-year-old girl at a 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night screening of Cabin in the Woods who was very vocal about telling her parents and everybody else in the theater that she did not want to be there. And I'm like, well, <laughs> oh, oh, that's yeah. such a good movie, but I get you five-year-old. But she's five. So yeah. sad. So, so, it was, <laughs> so um, but yeah, over, all right. I don't know how we got on that topic, but... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> nope, we tend to devolve. So this is the last Friday the 13th movie in theaters. Like other ideas have been floated around. There, when found footage movies were the new hit thing. I mean, basically, six months after this movie, Paranormal Activity comes out, and it's like a bomb goes off in terms of like what happens to horror over the next few years. So now there's an idea like let's do Friday the 13th as a found footage movie, which is the worst fucking idea yes. i think i've heard yes. um there's an idea for like setting it in like uh in the winter time and having snow which sounds pretty awesome mm-hmm. now we have a lawsuit and who knows when we're gonna get a new friday the 13th movie uh it's heartbreaking yeah I, it's honestly one of my biggest like i get really sad when i think about it that because we got a new halloween you know like last year and um it's been a long time since the nightmare too but like we know that at least is on the docket somewhere because it's not tied up in litigation but it's crazy to think that this massive franchise that has existed since the 80s and has had 12 entries we're not having anything because of this like litigation and again to look at the box office on this thing and to like because you look at it and you're like I hear a lot of people say now, they're like, well, why isn't there a new one? They don't, you know, they don't know. They're like, did it not do well? I'm like, no, it did great. Like, it made almost $100 million on a $20 million budget. Even, like, taking in, like, promos and stuff, that's still, like, $50, $60 million uh, profit. So, like, it did very well. Uh, It's just such a bummer that we don't have anything. It did well. I do know that, like, I think it was um, Brad Fuller was on the record as saying that because of how much that it dropped – and because of the same thing happened to A Nightmare on Elm Street a year later, um, that they did get gun-shy about doing anything else with it. Um, and that's part of why we didn't see something right away, is because they worried that like everybody that turned out that first weekend might stay home the second time around, which silly, because, like again, this movie's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go if there's a new one. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I, so, I hope they can get Derek Mears back, if, if so, because mm-hmm. he was perfect yeah 
And if you guys get a chance, I encourage anyone out there who's listening to, um, you can find Nick and Tosca's script online for the Friday the 13th movie that he wrote. Um, Nick and Tosca is the, he's the guy behind um, Channel Zero. He did like a 13 mm-hmm. episode run on Hannibal. He's doing that new movie, Antlers. It's spectacular. So it's just, it's a bummer to that. We have things like the Friday the 13th game, which they also put a halt to. And we have scripts from people like Nick and Tosca. And we're just sitting here with like our hands in our pockets waiting. Well, what you're seeing now are like the rise of like these fan films. Um, I would say anybody that hasn't seen Never Hike Alone, go on to you. It's free to watch on YouTube. It's phenomenal. Like if it was an official entry into the series, it would sit kind of near the top for me in terms of like quality of film. And I know that um, Womp Stomp Films and um, Vincente, is they're going to be announcing a follow-up to it and have some real clear plans for it. I believe September 13th is when they're going to kind of press forward with like what the next phase is for them. So if you haven't seen Never Hike Alone, it's really well done and a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So any last words on Friday the 13th, 2009, my friends? Go see it if you haven't, man. Get some friends together, have a party, and just enjoy. Yeah. It is fun. It yeah. is yep. a fun movie to watch the crowd. Absolutely. And so, it's- yeah, it is a lot of fun. So before we sign off, everybody, I know that you guys all have different projects that you're working on. So why don't we go around a little bit? And, you know, I know, Ryan, you have are relaunching Ghastly Grinning or kind of changing things up a little bit. Like, what's going on with that? Uh, yeah, so Ghastly Grinning was the poc- or the website I launched about a year ago that our our whole focus is looking at the genre that we all love um, through a celebratory and positive lens. I got so tired of reductive and like such like harshly critical things online. The world is toxic enough as is. So I was like, no, we need to celebrate and really uh, bring some positivity to this genre that we're all in love with. So everything on the site is from a positive angle. And it's also... Um, we push for LBGDQIA and female and minority representation in the genre as well. Um, so, like, that's our main goal. Uh, unfortunately, like, I'm really excited because all of my writers have gone on to do bigger and better things. They're all working for places like Arrow and Film Nation um, or uh, Film Rejects, but uh, I can't do everything alone. So, I had to reduce the site and instead, um, we're still doing reviews and some editorials here and there, but I'm launching the Ghastly Grinning podcast, which I'm calling like the late night show of horror. Um, my goal with that is to really, yes, I want, I like, I have some fun guests lined up for that, uh, like directors and screenwriters, but most importantly, I want to focus on people in the journalism field. Um, so, the people that are like my kind of personal heroes. So, um, I have a lot of people like Anya Stanley that you're going to see her byline everywhere. Um, like we, I, I have a huge list somewhere, but like, that's going to be our goal. And that launches the next couple of weeks. Um, I also have my keep screaming podcast, which again, that's my best friend and I, every two weeks we dissect a horror movie, um, a different slasher movie. And then, um, coming up, uh, it will be officially announced soon. Um, but I am launching the horror heels fundraiser, which is actually going to be hand in hand with, um, stop the stigma, which is a, a charity. Um, and what we're doing is we're reaching out to people in the industry, um, who are going to donate props, memorabilia, autographs, different things from projects that they've worked on. Um, and we're going to sell all of that and um we're going to donate 100 percent of the proceeds to stop the stigma which is a charity that is all um about promoting uh, mental health awareness and um people who don't have the means or the funds necessarily to get it um how they can find those 
That's really cool. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And that that um, we were trying to get it officially. Hopefully, the fu- like the actual fundraiser will happen the week of Halloween. Um, but to, for it to actually be a fundraiser, you got to go through some government processes, which are kind of taking mm-hmm. a little bit of time. Um, and then I'm also working on getting like an official ID number. I'm fortunate enough to work for Starbucks, and Starbucks will actually match the proceeds. Um, mm-hmm. So once I get oh, all nice. that in line, yeah. So once I get that in line, um, we'll officially announce that. But it's coming up pretty quick. Yeah, and if there's anything like. I know in the mental health industry, one of the things we, we try to do is act as advocates overall and also give back as part of the community. So I know like I've had clients I've done pro bono work for before. So, I mean, I think obviously we have a mental health crisis in this country. And I can tell you that like the backlog for someone trying to get help on average falls between six and eight weeks for someone that's at the end of their rope. It's really hard because there's just not enough of us out there to kind of help people out. So I think that's a, uh, that's a project that if there's any way I can assist in spreading the word, um, please like lean on me. Cause that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And stop the stigma is great. They do a lot. Um, again, like I said, they really make sure to try to reach out. Um, it, pr- it gives you, uh, it gives people who don't have the funds like access to um, therapy sessions and um, mm-hmm. whether that's in person or over the phone, it gives just people a lot of those avenues that they wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily think of. And they also do a lot of work with like helping families adjust to mental mm-hmm. health. Um, like, cause I know a lot of times like people's families have a hard time adjusting to their family member, ha- like being affected by um, mm-hmm. something from mental health. Um, so they do a lot of like that work too. Excellent. Definitely want to hear more about that. I'm looking forward to hear about the work you guys do with him in the future. Ariel, tell us about the bite and everything else you have going on. So uh, I have a column, as I mentioned earlier, at uh, Slash Film. It's called Queering the Scene. So queering is, if anyone's not familiar with the term, queering is an actual academic term that means doing a queer reading of something. Mm-hmm. Something. So the column is geared towards doing a queer reading of film, whether it's genre or drama or comedy, what have you. Uh, The first one was on the Slumber Party Massacre. The second one was on Mission Impossible 2. And the third one should be good to go by the end of this month. It's been a busy couple of, (laughs) busy few weeks, so I'm a little behind. Um, So that shall be coming soon. And then otherwise, we have The Bite. So Shudder has a weekly newsletter called The Bite, where we have a lead piece every month that's a look into horror history. It's usually around anniversaries. And then the rest of The Bite is all little snippets from horror news and fun things and Mm -hmm. an image of the week and everything like that. So really interesting stuff. It's good gateway stuff if you're not into horror. It's really excellent if you're already into horror and you kind of want to broaden your horizons because it straddles the world of, you know, horror fan culture and kind of everything else. Uh, But if you haven't subscribed, you can go to try.shutter.com to subscribe. And it comes out every Tuesday. Uh, We've got a really interesting lineup coming up for September. So I'm just finalizing all of that stuff. And Mm -hmm. you will, uh, on, what is it, Monday the 26th, I will be announcing everything first thing in the morning. So that will be, that's something to look forward to. (laughs) Cool. And you're on your way to cover, is it, is it TIFF kicking off this week? Uh, yes. On Well, n- next week, in ah, a week and a half, I've lost mm-hmm. track of time. So I mm-hmm. have no idea where I am or when I am or when that's happening. Um, September 5th, uh, TIFF starts. Okay. And so that goes from the 5th to the 15th. There will be a lot of interesting coverage coming out of there, including uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead's Synchronic. Uh, So that's having its world premiere at TIFF, which is exceptionally exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should be getting uh, Parasite 
Bong Joon-ho's new movie. So that's really, really exciting. Um, And then after that is Fantastic Fest, and the fun just never stops, and and the sleep never happens. (laughs) Benson and Moorhead are my two, I think, my two favorite filmmakers working in genre right now. Um, I really hope we get um, Synchronic at Telluride Horror Show. Really hope we are able to pull that in, because I absolutely adore everything they've done to date so far. Oh, yeah, they do amazing work. Yeah. Jen, what's going on with the horror virgin? Um, uh, so we talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but yeah, we're a comedy horror podcast um, where we talk about a movie every week. Um, we, Mikey, Todd, and I sit down and we all watch a movie together and then we talk about it and how scared Todd was and why I love it so much. It's If you like How Did This Get Made and you like horror, you'll like our podcast. We The most recent episode, the one that's out right now is Overlord. Uh-huh. and. Depending on when this drops, where our Jennifer's Body episode is about to come out too. Yeah, it'll hit the same day. It will hit the same day. So oh, yeah. <laughs> once you're done listening to this, just in the Jennifer's Body. How did this idea? So to me, it's a it's such a good idea, uh, and it's and it's completely unique. Like I don't know of any other podcast that does something yeah. like this, where they're like torturing their friend every week <laughs> for over a year now. So how did this idea come about? Well, so one of our original members was Clint, and he and Todd had been friends forever, and Clint always tried to get him to go to horror movies, and he never would because he hated them, but when we could convince him that we could make a podcast about it, that's when he signed on, so... It's been a long time in the making, Mm -hmm. Um, but another thing I wanted to talk about is I also write a blog for our website, um, Mm -hmm. it's at horrorvirgin.com, and um, not quite as hilarious as the podcast is, I tend to write a lot about um, feminism and uh, mental health and sexual assault, and um, it gets a little deep, but it's been a really... Um, helpful way for me to kind of process a lot of the things that have happened in my life and just, you know, um, I, the most recent one was about scary stories to tell in the dark and just how powerful it is to share our stories with each other. And I have one about Jennifer's body and the perfection that I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about. (laughs) And that's over at horrorvirgin.com. Yep. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight and you know, you know, filling in for Jerry, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight. We'd oh, love to ha- before I forget, because he'll kill me. He did tell me to say Jerry thinks Friday the 13th is the bee's knees. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. This was so much fun. We'd love to have all of you on again at some point. So definitely, Absolutely. please, please yeah. do. So we're going to be, uh, I think, next week. We're going to be starting our Blair Witch Project coverage, which I'm really excited about. I will tell everybody, um, if you heard our Friday the 13th Part 2 episode with Al White, director of Starfish, his podcast, We the Geeks, um, is also covering the Blair Witch Project at the same time as us. Um, I've heard the first episode on A Curse of the Blair Witch. It's fantastic. I'm like, shit. I'm like going through all my notes going like, they've covered this already. God damn it. I don't have a sexy British accent. <laughs> no one's going to want to listen to this. Half the reason I'm, um, I, I will say that half the reason I married my wife, um, she sounds just like Mary Poppins. So it's, it's amazing. 
Um, it's incredible. Uh, if she had a Cockney accent, I probably wouldn't, but that's okay. Um, but no, we're, I'm really excited. I was just on holiday and I spent pretty much every night there in a pub when everyone went to bed, just like writing about the Blair Witch Project. I, to me, it's one of my top three favorite horror movies of all time. Uh, it still scares the crap out of me to this day. It's one of the rare movies I won't let my daughter watch. Because A, I think it'll either A, scare her too much, or B, she won't appreciate it. Um, and I want her to be a little bit older so she can get a real appreciation for how great this movie is. So it's a little bit sad to say goodbye to our Friday the 13th coverage, but I am super excited for what we have coming up. So thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week.